Well, all right, how many of us have read Esther chapters one and two since Sunday? Well, several, that's great. How many forgot? How many didn't forget and still didn't do it anyway? He just didn't want to. Just be honest, there you go, okay. Esther chapter one, if you have a copy of God's word with you, I'm not gonna have all the verses on the screen and the, the reason for that is I'm reading a lot of verses. Um, we'll start off by reading the first chapter in its entirety, and then I'm going to be reading some from chapter two later during the sermon, um, but I really didn't want to give uh, 60 slides to whoever was working media, and uh, Kelby's having some trouble tonight, so we have like an 11-slide sermon. I think that'll work, won't it? All right. He's smirking at me. We'll keep it realistic. Our series through this incredible story is called God Behind the Scenes. God Behind the Scenes. Much of the Old Testament is like a front and center theatrical production. The ten plagues in Egypt, Israel crossing the Red Sea, bread falling from the sky, Ancient city walls collapsing, giants falling. But if you've ever been to a a theme park that has a behind-the-scenes tour, you know that for every great story, there's a lot of stuff going on behind it. Sometimes Scripture doesn't give us a front-row seat to the great show of how God works in the world for his people. Sometimes the biblical writers instead go behind the stage to some very messy, ordinary, and even troubling situations in which God is still at work. And that's the kind of book that Esther is. Esther is a behind-the-scenes look at how God works in the world to redeem his people. So if you're there, let's look at verse 1. I'll read aloud and you can follow along. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shishan the palace, in the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces before him, When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days, and when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shishan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel, for the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, He commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha 
Zathar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burnt in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all those that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshena, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meras, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. Blown out of proportion, maybe? Yep. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen, there's the report, to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Now, to some of us, this doesn't sound much like the Bible. (laughs) And that's precisely the point. Join me in just a quick prayer. It's actually a song, but it also works as a, a prayer. Let's bow together. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior. And make the book live to me. In Jesus' name, amen. My title tonight is An Impulsive King and an Absent God. An Impulsive King and an Absent God. For many people, even unfortunately for some Christians perhaps, life is absurd. It's not a big story, it doesn't have meaning or purpose. It's just one random act of chaos followed by another random act of chaos and on and on it goes. Leo Tolstoy, the famous author, admitted his struggle with what he saw as the apparent randomness of life. And he came to this conclusion, which probably speaks for a lot of people. Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Not something we would maybe say out loud in a connection group, but it resonates with the hearts of humans that live in a very broken and messed up world. Now, Christians can't get away from this question So many people find life absurd, without purpose, 
without meeting, without order, without a creator, but we claim that there is a great storyteller and a great story. We claim we're part of a meta-narrative, which is a big story that has a start, a middle, and an end. We claim that people have value, that our lives have meaning, that this God that we worship has a purpose for everything, and everything he does or everything that he allows works together as part of his plan. But if that's what we say, we have a lot to explain, don't we? In other words, in other words our problem is this. If the world is in fact directed by God, why do so many things happen in it that appear pointless? If the world is directed by God, why do so many things not seem to have his fingerprints on them? I was thinking about this question and grappling with this question that helps us approach the story of Esther. Now, before we walk through our text, I want to just help us orient ourselves with with what's going on. Because we we started reading in the Bible, and uh, we didn't read about sacrifices going on, or people becoming holy, or someone falling down before an angel, or someone hearing a revelation from God, or some new prophet being called. We opened up the Old Testament, and we opened to a drinking party on a Wednesday night in church. What's going on? Why are God's people in Persia? Why is this guy, of all people, calling the shots? A quick timeline, 597 B.C., Jehoiakim attempted a revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor. This failed and resulted in a bunch of Jews being carried away into Babylonian captivity. 587, there was another insurrection. Zedekiah led this, if you remember, ignoring the prophecies of Jeremiah. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar was less restrained in his response. Jerusalem and all the temple was destroyed, flattened to the ground. 540 B.C., Cyrus, the Mede, conquered, he conquered Media, sorry, the Persian, he conquered Media and united it with Persia, thus giving the Medo-Persian Empire. He issued a decree allowing a bunch of Jews to go back home to their homeland. We read about this in the books of Ezra and then Nehemiah, who led another group of people back. Cyrus's grandson Xerxes, um, Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name, ruled from 486 to 465 B.C. It was during his administration that some Jews were able to go back home. But unfortunately, many were still in Persia. And even those, by the way, that went back to Jerusalem, it's not like it was the days of King David anymore. Israel was no longer a superpower. Persia was the superpower. And everything and everyone bowed to Persia and the Persian emperor, who, by the way, wasn't voted in in some sort of process, but... As you can see, uh, he was the ruler because he was the ruler. That's how it worked back then. And in some uh, third world countries even today. So the Jews are living in difficult times. This is not a highlight period of Israel's history. We don't have a nation of Israel. We have Israeli captives. Prisoners to this this, uh, uh, dictatorial state under this man who we know isn't necessarily a great leader, as we just read. And this is where our story begins. Now, in the first nine verses, the the author helps us see Ahasuerus' kingdom and power. 
he comes on the scene larger than life. And the emperor, the, his boundaries for his empire are just amazing, especially when, when you look at what is said and think about it in relation to what's going on in the Pentateuch. You remember how small the, the, the strip of land was that Israel was always fighting over? Compared to this, Ethiopia to India, and yes, that's just as big as it sounds. Israel had been struggling with these different tribes uh, with the Canaanites to maintain a, a grasp on a, on a small tract of land. And, and their history went uh, on and on like this for years. And now we're introduced to this Ahasuerus guy, and he rules over people in 127 provinces from modern-day Africa to India. And he has everything in between. This is big. And not only do we see just how big his empire is, but did you notice all the details given about his house? Now, I, just, just a clue, okay? If you take 180 days to show off your palace, it's, this is not a studio apartment, right? Right? I mean, who, who does that? Hey, let's come over to my house for six months and let's drink. I want to I make sure you see everything. That, that's the kind of palace we're talking about here, right? This is a nice place. This is a nice pad. And this is where he lives. This is no David. This is no Solomon. In more ways than one, we're going to find out. This is an emperor like the Jews have never lived under before. Now, a king with this kind of power could do whatever he wanted to do, you would think. And Hajuera seemed to think so. He, he sees himself as the great power in history. The one who calls the shots. The one who decides the fates of people. And he decides to have a drinking party for a week because you can do that if you're the emperor of Persia. Everyone can drink as much as he wants, as much as they want. Why does he do this? To show off his greatness. Or should we say his perceived greatness? This is a man consumed not just with what he has, but with everyone around him knowing what he has and how much influence and how much sway he has over the world. Ahasuerus is in charge, and he wants everyone to know it. And it's precisely this, this, his perception of his own greatness that leads him into some trouble right off the bat. And it makes him really upset about what happens next, beginning in verse 10. So he sends some of his cabinet to fetch the queen from her own party to parade her in front of, her, of, of his drunken friends. Now, the reader should be in no doubt about what's going on here. This is not a meet and greet, right? This is not a meet and greet. Now, I, I know when you were in Sunday school and you saw little, like, um, what are those called? The, the flannel graphs? It looked like a meet and greet. This is not a meet and greet. This is bad stuff, right? You know, by the way, it only gets worse. He wants to parade his wife in front of his drunken friends, not just so they would see her beauty, that's not the point, because when she rejected, he could have, have made other arrangements for them to see here. It was not that she was beautiful, it's that he wanted to show that he was in charge of her. And when she didn't come, that, well, he wasn't in charge of her, was he? Now, this decision comes on the tail end of a full week of getting as absolutely wasted as he possibly could be, right? So, he's wanting... He, he makes this request to show off his power, to show off his authority. So Vashti would have none of it. Now, there's not a lot of use in speculating why. Um, 
the author is not creating Vashti as this kind of hero of feminist rights. Uh, maybe she just didn't like him. Maybe she was having a bad day. Maybe she was so drunk herself she didn't know what was going on because she was at her own party. Whatever the case, she refuses and we see the king's response and the reader discovers that the king is enraged by this. Now, Ahasuerus, because he feels like he's calling the shots, because he feels like everything that goes on in the empire is under his control, he does not like insubordination at all. He's got a zero-tolerance policy for disobedience, right? Now, this weak spot, by the way, is going to return later. So Vashti, for reasons unknown, refuses to comply with this degrading request. So the king has one of many disastrous cabinet meetings. My favorite part of the book of Esther is these cabinet meetings. Basically, what, what Ahasuerus does, um, and by the way, he didn't rule very long if you read history, and this is why. Anytime he came to a problem, he would have a cabinet meeting, and, and whatever, uh, whatever suggestion came up, he would say, all right, let's go with that. Let's get the legal team together and, and throw it on some paper and make it happen, no matter how dumb the idea was. And this idea is really dumb, all right? Did you, you, I read it, even if you didn't read it this week, you heard, you heard me read it or you saw it in your Bible. This is a really, really bad idea. The whole cabinet is drunk, for starters. And here's the pitch. Ahasuerus, listen, King, if you let this happen, if you let this happen, uh, none of the wives in the entire Persian Empire are going to obey their husbands. Really? <laughs> you think that's what's going to happen? Well, that's what they thought. They thought she was going to be some sort of revolutionary. Now, let's just pause for a second. Uh, there's nothing wrong with laughing at the Bible. Because this is funny. Now, we should take the Bible seriously. We should take the Bible seriously. But taking the Bible seriously means sometimes God gives us incredible pictures of how dumb we can be in our sin. Of how dumb people can be when they forget God and of the kind of decisions that are created out of those situations. And Esther is full of comedy. This is the first of many. Now just think about how humorous this is. Um, uh, Vashti doesn't obey. And Ahasuerus is going to use this moment to, uh, to say, I'm going to create some legislation so that all wives obey. He couldn't even get her to obey. But now they've got him convinced in this great cabinet meeting that all the women in the empire are going to obey their husbands when he can't even tell Vashti what to do. This is pretty funny. So then there's a search. He wants to replace Vashti, and that brings us to the next scene, beginning in chapter 2. I didn't read chapter 2, but we're going to read some of it as we go on. Now, if you thought the disturbing was limited to chapter 1, you were wrong. It's not. And I have to tell you, now, a lot of people have told me, David, I'm so excited we're going through Esther. Esther's my favorite book. Well, Esther's one of my favorite books too, but maybe not for the same reasons, okay? Esther's a great book. It's wonderful. I love it. I've spent a lot of time in it. And uh, but it's not a great book because it would make a good Disney movie, okay? Now, I know they made a movie about it. It was PG, so that shows you how much they missed the mark. Um, this is not a good Disney movie. Now, you can... You can change it um, to, to make it that way, but you'd have to change literally everything about it. Ahasuerus is not a good guy. Esther does not end up in a good marriage, okay? In fact, if, you, if you've read history, you know that Ahasuerus ended up getting assassinated because the, these same cabinet guys found out he was 
having relations with literally all their wives. So they killed him. That's how it ended. And then maybe Esther was a little bit happier. But this is not happy news, and it's especially not happy news for Jewish readers. I want you to think of the weight of what goes on in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He, this, he, his next decree, his next great idea, he's going uh, to have virgins be sought throughout the empire. Now, if Kim Jong-un somehow came to power in most of North America, and he requested that all the 12 to 18-year-old single girls be shipped to North Korea so he could experiment with them, you would not be a happy parent. That's not, you don't make a Disney movie off of that, do you? <laughs> this is bad. This wasn't supposed to happen to Israel, was it? This wasn't supposed to happen to their children. That's not the way things were supposed to be if they followed God's law and things. But they didn't follow God's law. And, and their world has now descended into a kind of chaos that the Jews that lived under David, and by the way, the Jews, even the Jews that lived under Solomon could have never, ever imagined. So, girls all over the empire are trafficked to the capital by a power-hungry despot so they can be used as his objects. And Esther is one of those people. Have you ever felt that life doesn't make any sense? <laughs> now, Esther hadn't heard of Leo Tolstoy because he's, he's not going to be around for a long time, but do you think that quote may have just resonated a little bit with her? As she's literally being smuggled from her friends, from her family? If God is who he says he is, then how can something like this happen? Well, it doesn't get much better. By the way, we learned something about the Bible here. Um, the Bible does not bypass the horrific and uncomfortable experiences of life. Now, some people will say it does, right? And you've had your non-Christian friends tell you, well, you just uh, use religion for a crutch. It, it, you use religion as escapism, as a fantasy to get away from just how terrible life really is. No, uh, Christians don't do that at all. And the Bible certainly is not guilty of that in any way. No, this is the kind of thing that happened in the ancient world. And it's the kind of thing in some places that happens today. And, and um, the Bible's honest about it. The Bible's honest about it. The Bible doesn't teach any of us about a God who's great and is, is so powerful and is so in control that bad things don't happen. In fact, it teaches us that God is good, that he is great, that he is in control, and yet he does allow bad things to happen in our sin-cursed world. Verse number five, beginning in uh, verse number five of chapter two, Esther, Esther is taken and the plot thickens. Now, the first Jews enter the story here. It's a bit surprising because both Esther and Mordecai have Babylonian names. And as the readers, as the Jewish readers are engaging in what we would call chapter 2, they're understanding that, that Israel is just literally, their, their culture, their, their temple system, their priesthood, everything has been cleaned off the earth for a little while. 
Esther and Mordecai both go by Babylonian names because the, the, the Jews are not in charge anymore. They don't have their own homeland yet. Now, a couple things to notice about this. This is what is going on with Esther in chapter 2 is, is tragic. Her being carried away, uh, and we look at the whole, what happens from verses 5 to 20. This is tragic, but Esther is not portrayed as a villain. She, this wasn't her idea. She has, yeah, she's, she's going to marry a pagan king, but that wasn't her choice. She's a victim. She's a victim. She's not, a, by the way, she's not a flawless hero either, but she's certainly not the villain. Some terrible things are happening, but really, these things aren't Esther's fault. You know, karma, karma is really not the way the world operates. You can have terrible things happen to you. You can even be a Christian and have terrible things happen to you, and it's not because necessarily that the bad things you've done are coming back to get you. It wasn't that way with Job. It's certainly not that way with Esther. But she is put in a tragic position. Uh, beginning in verse 21 in chapter 2. Let's, let's read verses 21 through 23. In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Than and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. She reported it to the king and told him how she found out. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. And here we have some foreshadowing for what's going to happen later. So the last scene comes at the end of chapter 2. The narrator doesn't really tell us what's going on, but we know there's an assassination plot. And here's the thing. Mordecai just so happens, or not, to be in the right place at the right time. Now, we, we, now this, it shouldn't be surprising that there's an assassination plot going on, right? Because the king is very impulsive, he's very powerful, he does a lot of crazy stuff, so it's not that surprising that people are trying to kill him. And we know that in the end, people were successful and they killed him. But despite all of that, Mordecai is in the right place at the right time, knows what's going on, does the right thing, even for this pagan king, by saving his life, and that's where the author leaves that, and that's where we're going to leave our text as well. We've had a lot of tragic things happen in these two chapters. Would you agree? <laughs> What's the point of all this? Why did this happen? And, and furthermore, why was this written down for God's people? Because if you're like me, and if you've, if you've looked at these chapters and honestly thought about them, if you've tried to put yourself in the shoes of these people, if you've tried to reckon with the weight of the kind of awful tragedy that's going on here, you may be wondering, well, I don't even know if I should have read this in the first place. Do I really want to know that these kinds of things happened? Much less to God's people? The people that he made promises to? The, the very people he committed himself to, the people that he said he was going to send a Messiah to save the world, do I really want to know that these kinds of things happen to them? Well, if you feel that way, I can sympathize with you. Now, have you, by the way, have you noticed what's missing in our narrative? Have you noticed what's missing? 
God, or so it seems. We don't have any miracles. We don't have any appearances of angels. We don't have any prophecies. Not only do we not have any good prophecies, like wouldn't it be great if an, if an angel just came down in the middle of all this? You know, like, there, there, were, there were, were angels that came down and killed 140,000 attacking Assyrians who were going to destroy Israel. And wouldn't it be great if while Esther was on the way to the palace, God could have just intervened and protected her so she could go back home? But that doesn't happen, does it? We don't have any manna falling from the sky. We don't have anyone getting across the Red Sea. We don't have any plagues. Not only do we not have any good prophecies, by the way, we don't even have any bad prophecies. Maybe it would be nice if God at least said something negative just so his people could know he was still talking to them, but he he doesn't speak up. And this leads the reader to ask the question, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? We look at the story of Esther, and the earlier readers would have looked at this scroll as it's sitting before them in their synagogue, and they would have asked, where is God? Where is God when an orphan Jewish girl is taken from her home? Where is God when the main person in world history is a drunken guy who instead of leading his people has six-month-long parties to show off his house? Where is God when the law is absent from daily life, when there are no prophets, when there are no sacrifices, when there's not a single sign at all of the coming Messiah? That's the question. Where is God? In, in her commentary, Deborah Reed says that this apparent absence of God is precisely the point. Because as we read it, by not mentioning God's name, the author is inviting the reader, that's you and I, to look for him. We don't see him named. That's unusual for the Bible, isn't it? And so we begin to look. Well, if he's not named, where is he? Where is he? And as we look, what do we find? Well, we discover that he is everywhere and hidden at the same time. Not one or the other. Did you get that? He is everywhere and hidden at the same time. Mark Dever writes this about the book. He said, when we read Esther, God's ability to accomplish his purposes despite his hiddenness only heightens our sense of how powerful he really is. Dever says, Esther is really just one long narrative illustration of Romans 8.28. Isn't that good? And here's the truth of our text. The truth of our text tonight is this. God is omnipotently present even when he is apparently most absent. Now we know, we know if we're Bible readers and maybe if we've had good things happen to us in our spiritual lives, we already know that God is present when he's apparently present. But friend, did you know that God is even present when he is apparently absent? Because it's not just the scroll, it's not just the book of Esther that we look at and we want to ask the question, where is God? We look at our own lives and we ask, the same question. You see, God is not only present in the plagues and in the Red Sea crossing and in miracles happening, 
He is also present in a drunken monarch's court. Present as wicked men make dumb laws. Present when this girl is taken from her home. God is omnipotently present even when he is most apparently absent. Again, it's not just the book of Esther that makes us ask, where is God in all of this, is it? Some of you have gotten a phone call you never wanted to get. And at the end of the phone call, maybe like reading Esther chapters 1 and 2, you sat down and you cried and you said, where is God? Where is the God that claims he is good? Where is the God who has told me that he's in control? Where is the God who has told me that he loves me? that he cares about me, that he has this great plan for my life. This phone call wasn't part of my great plan for my life. See, perhaps something is going on right now or something has happened in the past for you that makes the idea of a God who directs all things seem almost unbelievable. You believed it when you were a kid. Maybe you believed it when you were a teenager. Maybe you believed it into most of your adult life, but something has happened along the way where you look at what's happened, you look at the life you never wanted to have, you look at the, 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 heart, the, the heartbreak that you never wanted to experience, and you look up and say, God, where in the world are you? If what you say about yourself is true, why is this happening to me? That question can come to us in a lot of ways. You may be keeping up with world news. And you may be upset about a lot of things happening. You may think, this is not the world I wanted to live in. This is not the world I want my grandkids to live in. Someone has broken your heart by betraying you. And even though you know it's not true and you know that's not how it works, you feel like there's there's just a small part of your soul and you wouldn't want to say it out loud and you don't even want to say it in your mind. But listen, when you've been betrayed, there's a small part of your soul that says, "It, it kind of feels like God is betraying me too. Do you know what that's like? Not all of us do, but some of you do. Some of you know what that's like. Your kids don't respect you. Your image, this ideal, this great Christian family has fallen apart. You had a fight so bad with your spouse, you, you just don't care anymore. It could be besetting sins. This is a temptation you thought you had defeated. You thought it was gone. You thought it was dead. You thought you had overcome it. You thought you had gone over it. You, you went to pastor for counseling. Everybody thinks you've moved on, but in reality, it still has you, and you're wondering if God, God, if you are who you say you are, why this? Where is God in my temptation? Where is God in my sorrow? Where is God in my disappointment? You look at these things, and then you come to church, and, and people around you are singing, There's a new name written down in glory, and you're sitting there thinking, yeah, whatever. Great, I'm going to heaven, but why does that matter when God has let me down? Now, to the degree that you can identify with that, to the the degree you can identify with this and know what I'm talking about, 
you will be able to benefit from this book of the Bible. Life is not random. But the Bible is pretty clear that sometimes life will feel random. God doesn't abandon his people, but the Bible makes it pretty clear in what it records for us and what it doesn't um, airbrush from history that God's people will be in situations and they'll be in places where it will seem very much like God has abandoned them. God keeps his promises. But the Bible teaches that we won't always be in situations where it's easy to see how in the world he's going about keeping them. Now, you may not like any of that. And Esther didn't either. (laughs) But it's true. You see, God's activity in your life and God's activity in my life is not contingent on our ability to perceive what he is doing, but on his character and promises. You know, you remember when you got saved? If you remember when you got saved, that was a great day, wasn't it? You saw God working and you were like sitting when, when um, your heart turned to start trusting in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. It's like sitting on the front row of an amazing show. You knew God was working. He was just right there. When God healed your relative of cancer, front row seat. There was no question in your mind of how God was working. You could tell other people, look what God did for me. Look what God did for my family. When you held your first child in the hospital, there was no question of what God was doing in your life. It was so obvious. You could say, look, look at his goodness. It's right there in front of me. But there are other times in our lives. The times beside when we got saved, when our kid got baptized, when we stood and got married. Times beside those times where we have no idea what God is doing because he's not on the stage anymore. He is so far behind the scenes. There's so much darkness that we have no idea how in the world He's going to keep all of his promises to us. And that's where some of our lives are going to be lived. Now, if that discourages you, then hold on. <laughs> hold on. We have this, this amazing, when we come to Esther, we have this amazing uh, benefit that Esther and Mordecai don't have. We know how their story ends. And isn't, isn't, doesn't it make reading the book a little easier? You know, when Haman comes on the scene, he starts doing all of his stuff, and, you know, there's this tension of, is he going to destroy all of God's people? Is he going to stop the Messiah from coming into the world? You know, it's not that tense for us because it's already been written down and we know how it ends. And we have that advantage when we read Esther that Esther and Mordecai didn't have. But listen, we don't have that advantage when it comes to our story. You don't have that. How is God going to use this? Whatever thing it is, when I, when I say, what in your life makes you feel like you don't know if you can trust God, something could be coming to your mind. Whatever that thing is that just popped up in your heart that you want to kind of swallow down, whatever that thing is, listen, God will work it out in his purposes and he's going to use it no matter how dark, no matter how messy, he's going to use it to make you more like his son. That's what he promises us. But we don't know how that's going to work, do we? God is present even when, even when, he is most, he is apparently most absent. What is it that's causing you in your life to question what God is doing? 
What is, in your, what is it in your life that makes it hard to see and worship a God who keeps his promises? Whatever that thing is, will you just open up to the Lord tonight and be honest about it? God invites us to trust him, not because he always shows us what he's doing. And frankly, I don't even know if our minds could handle that. God invites us to trust him, not because he always shows his work like we do in geometry or like some of us tried to do. God invites us to trust him because of his character. And that's something you can trust. What is it tonight that's making it difficult for you to trust that God is working? Give that thing to the Lord. Let's pray. Father.